Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we are continuing our series in the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter two. How many of you did your homework this week? Four of you. So disappointing. So disappointing. You didn't read it because you knew I was going to read it all tonight, so that's okay. Uh, next week, I'd love for you to read, or between now and next week, in Ruth chapter 3. Um, so get that in, get that connected, and uh, you don't want to miss next week as we cover Ruth chapter 3. Uh, we're getting into some good stuff now, and uh, so it's exciting. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about the introduction of Ruth, what, it, um, what was the setting, what was biblically going on, historically going on, and so we won't recap all of that tonight, uh, but one thing I do want to do is go back to where we left off, because where the story left off last week is a really, it's, it's a really important part of the story. Um, Ruth and Naomi. Naomi is the mother-in-law to Ruth. Uh, Naomi's sons had died. Her husband had died. Uh, One of her daughters-in-law went back to Moab or stayed in Moab. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, went with Naomi, and they left Moab to go back to Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, this climactic moment, and they say, isn't that Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi because I'm not cheerful. Call me Mara because I am bitter. That's who I am now because God has dealt bitterly with me. And that's what she says. And it seems to end on this down note uh, at the end of Ruth chapter 1. And really, if you remember last week, one of the things we talked about was the last line of Ruth chapter 1 is that when they got back to Bethlehem, it was the beginning of barley harvest. And that was the time that they should have been hopeful, that they should have had some anticipation about what was to come. And, And hopefully that's where we left off for you. Um, And so as we transition into this chapter, it sets the tone that they are back in Bethlehem. It's this mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, and they have have nothing. They're penniless, and they are trying to figure out how to eke out an existence. And that's where we pick it up in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, this is setting the, the, the setting for us. It's, it's kind of setting up what this looks like. Now, again, as a reader, we see this, but if you are living this out, you don't, okay? So imagine if you are Naomi and Ruth, and the person who wrote this, maybe, maybe Samuel, he says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So he says, hey, she's got this relative, but, but they don't realize it yet. And so we're let into this little secret, and we go, oh, okay. And you might not even know what that means yet, but we'll get into that. Don't worry. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field in the re- with the reapers, or after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now last week, one of the things we talked about was um, when it described uh, Elimelech, uh, the the father, or the husband to Naomi, um, it described him as of the clan of Elimelech, he he was of the... uh, 
of the town of Bethlehem, of the, the clan. And so it went through and gave this. And now, again, it's coming back and saying, oh, this guy is a relative. That's basically what it's saying. He was a relative of uh, Elimelech. So they're, they're family. They knew, they, they're connected to each other. And again, last week we talked a little bit about that term kinsman redeemer. And this is where this comes into play this week. We'll really get into that a little bit. So again, this is a clue to why this is important. Um, now, I don't know about you, I grew up in church, so I heard the word glean, but I never really knew what it meant. I never really understood. I could use it in context, but I couldn't really use it in biblical context. And what gleaning was, um, it comes from Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. It gives us instructions, or it gives biblical uh, farmers instructions on how to provide for people in the town that are less fortunate. Now, this is very different than, um, than charity. It's very different than handout. But what they would do is they would make a provision that when you, when you harvested a field or when you harvested fruit, uh, you would leave a portion for people who had no land of their own. Um, and what this provision did is it allowed people to not take a handout. They weren't taking charity, but they were allowed to work to earn a living. And this is the thing that was really interesting to me, is that it's, um, it's intended to help the people see their source is not the wealthy person who owns the land. The source is the one who provides fruit in the land, which is ultimately God. So even if you don't own land, God is still your source. And that's the idea behind this. And so there were portions of land that were left um, that were left unharvested. And so there's a couple things we need to know about when it comes to gleaning. The first thing is um, the farmers were to leave margins of their grain unharvested. Now it was up to them to determine which parts were left unharvested or how much, uh, but typically a pretty good portion of their property was left unharvested as a provision for people in their community that had nothing else. Uh, and... <laughs> This isn't even my notes. Bonus coverage, and you're going to hate this bonus coverage. For the person that says, hey, this is my money. I don't have to give. This is, this is God saying, no, 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 no. Everything you have as a landowner comes from me. So when you give some up for someone else, you're not giving yours up. You're giving mine up. Does that make sense? And so what they did is they willingly left a portion of their field unharvested for those who didn't own land. And there were a significant number of people who didn't own land in that day and age. There were um, people who were resident foreigners. There were people who were um, widowed many times, children, um, people who um, had physical infirmities that they couldn't own property and they couldn't work the land like that. So there were, there were provisions for them to be able to still do some work to be able to provide for themselves and eat because it was all from God. The second thing we see is uh, they were not to pick up whatever pr produce fell to the ground. So the farmer, they had to, um, if they were farming barley, they could gather it, they could use a, a, a sickle and cut it, and then whatever fell to the ground they were to leave. They weren't supposed to gather up what went to the ground. What they were supposed to do is only gather um, what, what they could manage. So if it fell, it was supposed to be gleaned. Uh, that was for those who were coming behind them. This, the third thing we see is um, they were to harvest their vineyards just once. 
So if they had a fruit vineyard, specifically a grape vineyard, um, they could only harvest it once. So now some of you have gardens and you understand that you might have a tomato plant produce fruit, right? You, you, it produces tomato and you can plant again. It'll produce another, you'll get another tomato plant, and, you know, right? Fruit over and over and over. So like my dad, he might get tomatoes two or three times uh, by getting all he can and then replanting and but what they did here is they said you can only take one harvest. So what would happen is they would reap a harvest on the fruit when it was ripe. And then if any more fruit ripened up, they couldn't get it. That was for the gleaners, the people who would come later. Um, and so we see that, that although farming was not very, it, it was not as precise as it is today, God still instructed them to leave margin for those who were coming behind them, to leave um, to make provision for those who needed it. And this is where Ruth and Naomi fall in because Naomi say, or Ruth is saying, hey, I just want to go glean some from the field. Maybe we can eat if I just go glean from this field. Uh, and what we see is she goes out to do this and she receives the blessing from her mother-in-law to go do this and she ends up in the field belonging to Boaz. Again, because we're reading the story, we know that Boaz is a relative of her deceased father-in-law, and ultimately a relative of her deceased husband as well. So this is where we'll pick it up in verse 4. It says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, <laughs> I don't know what this is like. I don't know how you feel about your boss. But he rolled up. He showed up from Bethlehem. He gets there. And he's excited. He sees the people working in his field. And he said, the Lord be with you. And they responded. And they didn't go, shut up, you jerk, right? They said, and also with you. And I can imagine that there was a healthy relationship here. Uh, this tells us something about who Boaz was as a, as a man. Because if he leads well, that probably says something about his character. So we see initially, right out of the chute, that this was a man who probably was a man of character. It says in verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now, I love this. And a couple things I want to point out. Number one, we talked last week about this, but when, when Ruth made the decision to leave her old life behind and go to Israel, go to Judah, and then settle in Bethlehem, what she was saying is, um, I'm leaving behind my old life and I'm adopting a new life. And although she was adopting a new life, her identity still rested in her old life. Does that make sense? What she was called by others was her old life. So when she showed up, nobody said, hey, here's the girl that's new to town, right? She's adopting Judaism. She's adopting our beliefs. She's adopting our culture. No, they said, there's that Moabite girl. And this is what we have to understand. When we are leaving an old life and going to a new life, for some people, it's going to be a hard transition. And they might still call you by your old name and by your old identity. And they might go, no, 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 you're a Moabite. And you go, no, 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 that's who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. But see, they hadn't experienced her. They hadn't been around her. They hadn't seen her. And so that's all they knew of her. 
And so some of you are making this transition from an old life, an old way of life, old habits, an old culture, an old friend group, and you're moving to a new life, and, and, and there's going to be some people that go, oh no, I know who you are. And you, you're going to have to live with that for a little while until people see who you really are, until people experience you and experience the God in you, they might still call you a Moabite for a while. And that's just something you're going to have to live with. Whenever you go into a new culture and a new life, it's going to take a little bit. But I love this because Boaz asks about this young woman, and he says this is the Moabite woman who came back with, for, from, with Naomi from Moab. But listen to what he said. Um, she asked me if she could work in the field. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. I love this because this guy doesn't even know who she is. She's a foreigner living in their land, and he says, well, I don't know anything about her. I mean, I know where she came from, and I know who she's with, but other than that, all I know is she works hard. Man, she's in this field from, from sun up to sundown. She has a, a short little break, and that's all. And, and for someone like Boaz, that had to be impressive. He had to go, wow, that's something, that she is willingly taking care of her dead husband's mom. That says something about how this girl would look after her mother. And again, it says something about her character. In verse eight, it says, then Boaz said to Ruth, so after he asks about her, he approaches her, and he says, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Because what he's saying is, hey, for a young foreigner in our country, a, a lovely younger woman, it's probably not good for you to be in another field. Because women had very few rights, and a foreign woman had even fewer rights. And he said, I'm concerned for your safety, so stay here with my guys, and they won't touch you. They'll make sure you're taken care of. In fact, when it's time to drink, you don't have to drink with the other foreigners. You can drink with my men, as if you're one of my servants, as if you're one of my people. That was a big deal. So in this one moment, he's saying, if you will stick with me, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to provide for you. Protection and provision. This is what he's offering, with nothing in return. He says, this is what I'm willing to do for you. Verse 10 says this, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered to her, listen to this, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you have left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Listen to this. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said to him, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, last week we talked about the word hased, and hased means loving kindness, and it means so much more than that. It has this, this inference of 
of covenant relationship, and covenant relationship is not contractual. Again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but a contractual relationship says, I'll be good to you as long as you be good to me. And if you're bad to me, then all bets are off. I'm not going to be good to you anymore. Covenant says, uh, we're in relationship because I care deeply about you. No matter what happens, I choose to love you, not because I feel it, because I choose it. And so even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I still hold up my end of the bargain. And so this is that word that's used here, kindly. When she says, you have dealt kindly with me, what she's saying is, you have displayed said to me. I don't deserve it. There's no reason you should treat me like this, but you are loving me and taking care of me and providing for me and protecting me, giving me what I need as if I'm part of your family, but I'm not part of your family. And this is so important for us to remember that everything we see here is foreshadowing to how God takes care of his people, how God speaks lovingly and kindly to his people. In the month of June, we're going to be in a series where we talk about fathers. Um, And really, the theme of the series is how we view our Father determines how we view our Heavenly Father many times. And and this is what you have to understand. When Boaz approaches her, and he's being kind to her, and he's showing her the love of God, uh, he is a father figure in some ways to her. And what he's displaying is the the loving, father-like love of God for us. He's helping her see what that really means, what it really looks like. He displays kindness to her. He speaks kindly to her. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, so it was time to eat. And he says to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her toasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull some out of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now, I love Thanksgiving. I don't like Thanksgiving all year long. For some reason, Thanksgiving's just better at the end of November. Does anybody else bear witness with that? Like if my wife was like, how about some turkey and dressing for dinner tonight? I'd be like... It's kind of weird. <laughs> we don't eat turkey and dressing in May. We eat it in November. I don't know why that is. Um, but for some reason, I get geared up for Thanksgiving. And, and you eat, right? Yes, we give thanks, but then we eat. That's what Thanksgiving's about. And you, you watch football, and you, you spend time with family, and some family you don't want to spend time with maybe, but, but not for me. I like spending time with my family, okay? Just for all of my family that are watching online. I like watching football with you. Uh, so you eat and you're full. You know that feeling like before you feel sick? You know, the, the feeling where you're like, whew, I feel good. Like I cross that line sometimes, but where you stop and it's just perfect. And you're like, oh, I feel good. I'm content. I've eaten my fill. I'm satisfied. But then, you know, after Thanksgiving, you have leftovers, right? Like, all right, leftovers, here, they, here we come. And this is what... Ruth experienced. She experienced, she experienced abundance. Uh, you don't appreciate how good it is to have plenty of food in your fridge until you don't have plenty of food in your fridge. You don't know how good it is to be able to pay your bill without worrying about it until you've had to pay your bill with trembling fingers, hoping that they don't cash this check before this check clears. 
Because then when your bank account is a little fuller, there's just a peace. And Ruth knew what it was like to wonder where her next meal was coming from. On this journey, I can imagine from Moab to Judah, with no husband, no male figure, no patriarch to take care of them, and it's just her and her mother-in-law trying to figure out how they were going to eat, what was going to happen. And here in this moment, she receives kindness from Boaz, and she eats until she's content, and she has some left over. Can you imagine how good that must have felt? Can you imagine her just experiencing that abundance and going, I've got enough. Tonight, some of you are here, and and you're struggling because you don't have enough. You, you feel like you're coming up short financially, emotionally, spiritually. You, you feel like you don't have enough peace. You feel like you don't have enough joy. You feel like you don't have enough margin in your finances, whatever it is. You, you don't know what it's like to have enough. And I'm telling you today, our God is a God of enough. <laughs> Boaz is a picture of this because he provides for her. He gives her her meal, her lunch. He gives her all she wants and there's some left. And then he goes on to say this. Listen to this. She goes back into the field, and he tells his guys, hey, let her glean among the reapers, is what he's saying. So what he's saying is, um, make sure she gets more than she should. Because again, remember what I said, uh, what fell to the ground belonged to the gleaners, but what didn't fall belonged to the reapers. And so what he was saying is, give her the good stuff, not just the stuff that falls to the ground. And don't stop there. Take some out of the bundle and drop it on the ground for her. Make sure she has enough, is what he's saying. Give her all she needs. And I love this picture of who our God is. Because our God is not a God who's short on resources. And I don't mean financial resources, I mean resources of any kind. And so if if you are lacking, I'm telling you today, our God is a God who's ready to pour peace and hope and joy on you if you are lacking these things. I also love this. It's not really a deep spiritual point here, but I love the fact that Boaz had the ability to go, no, 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 don't go to work. Don't you go out in that field. I got you taken care of. But he didn't, did he? He said, no, no, let her go work. But, but make sure you help her. But she's going to put her hours in. She's going to do what she came here to do. But make sure you help her. Make sure she gets enough. I don't know, there's something about that that I think sometimes spiritually we just expect God to give us and give us and give us and give us and give us. And what we have to understand, if you were here Wednesday night, what a great message. Pastor Kyle Heyman was with us Wednesday night and uh, he talked about um, how God sanctifies us, but we have to, we, we play a part in that. And sometimes we don't want to do our part of the work. We just want God to give us and give us and give us. And I can imagine in this picture, we're kind of like Ruth, and God's kind of like Boaz. And we're going, well, can you just give it to me? I know. Come on, give it to me. And God's going, would you just get out there and do some thing? Do what you were called to do. Go out in the field. Okay, that was bonus coverage. That was just a side point. Not even in my notes. But we're not going to edit it from the video. We're going to leave it. So, Ruth chapter 2, verse 17 says this. So she gleaned in the field until evening. So again, she worked from sun up to sundown. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That, that phrase, beat out, it's threshed is what it means. Um, we won't get into all of this. Next week, we'll probably talk a little bit about the threshing floor. Um, but when you're, when you're threshing grain, 
the important thing to understand is you're separating the, the head from the stalk. And so uh, even if you're not a farmer, if you've seen uh, a wheat field, you'll see there's a stalk and at the top there's a head, right? And so what the threshing does is it separates the head from the stalk, and there's another step. And in, in, in biblical times, these were kind of merged together, but the winnowing will separate the grain from the chaff. And so the winnowing will, will actually get the good stuff out and separate the good from the bad. Now, there are several ways you can thresh. There were implements in biblical times. Um, and again, next week we might talk about this some. But the, there were implements that were used to help thresh the wheat and the barley to separate what you wanted from the, what you didn't want, uh, the stuff that you used to make bread from just the junk that you wanted to get rid of. And so what she was doing when she was threshing this out in, in a very practical way was she was probably using her hands. She was probably rolling it in her hands, rubbing it, and just breaking this apart. And this is what she did, and this was probably a long process. It probably wasn't something that she did in a short period of time. And so I'm, I'm telling you this to help you understand she started at the beginning of the day, she finished at the end of the day, after sundown, but she didn't stop then because what she did then was she, she threshed it to make sure she could take home the good stuff and leave the bad stuff behind. And so this is a woman who worked terribly hard to make sure she could do what she was supposed to do. Verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She'd also, uh, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Um, <laughs> Ruth comes home and her mother-in-law's amazed. She's like, how did you glean this much food? Where did, you get these, where did you get this food from? How did this happen, is what she's saying. She's amazed at the provision. She said, I can't believe all we've got. And she said, it's so cool. And she starts telling the story, and I was in this field, and da-da-da-da-da. She's going through the details, and, and the guy's name was Boaz. Now, again, for us, that doesn't mean anything to us. We know from the beginning of the story that they're related somehow. But then she gets to this point, and she says his name was Boaz. And in verse 20, it says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Let me stop there for a second. I love this. I love this idea, because what Naomi is saying to Ruth is, You know what? Uh, I thought God was not good to me. You know, when we got here, I said, Don't call me. Don't call me joyful or cheerful. Don't call me that name because that's not who I am. I said, call me Mara because God's been bad to me. And she said, you're telling me his name is Boaz? I can't believe this. And she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. May Boaz be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She says, may Boaz be blessed by God because his goodness, God is so good, he doesn't forget about the living She's talking about herself and Ruth or the dead. And she's talking about her sons and her husband. She said, I thought God had hung us out to dry, but I realize now God's good. Have you ever experienced that before? A, a turn of events where you thought, man, God, I thought you forgot about me. And then all of a sudden something turns in your favor and you're all, oh, but you haven't. I, for, I forgot how good you are, God. <laughs> 
What you've done before, I know you could do it again. When you've moved before, I know you can do it again. So, so she just declares, may Boaz be blessed by God, whose kindness, and again, this word kindness, it's a said, his loving kindness, his covenant love, his relationship with us, it has not forsaken the living or the dead. God has not forgotten us. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite, again, it keeps calling her the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she recognizes he's providing for you. He's protecting you. He is, he is our redeemer. Now, again, we mentioned this last week. This word redeemer here in the Hebrews, it's ga'al. And what it means is, literally it means to be next of kin. Now, I know we're northern Appalachian area. Um, I've got a lot of family in eastern Oklahoma. And I'm just saying eastern Oklahoma is uh, a little bit country. Can I say it that way? <laughs> Yeah. You remember Donnie and Marie, a little bit country, a little bit of rock and roll? It was just a little bit country. There was no rock and roll in eastern Oklahoma, okay? It was just country. And I never heard the word kin or kinfolk before I spent some time with my family in eastern Oklahoma. So we hear this and we just think country, but literally what it means is, uh, this word redeemer means next of kin, the, the person in my family who's close to me is what it means. Um, when we think about this word redeemer, we think about it sometimes in the context of like coupons. I redeem a coupon. But really in, in the context of scripture, we have to think about it in these terms that it is the next of kin. So the law of kinsman redeemer, I talked about just a little bit last week, just portion of it. But let me just break it down for you real quickly. According to this law, if a man of Israel died without an heir, um, his his brother was the next in line to marry his wife. So the brother would marry the, the widow, and any child they had would be an heir of the dead brother. I know this is a little bit confusing. But it wasn't just about the brother, it was about the nearest relative. So if there was no brother, um, if there wasn't a full-blood brother, then the uncle was next. If it wasn't the uncle, then it was a cousin. And if there wasn't a cousin who was available or, or met the criteria, then any male relative would work to help redeem. Now, the reason this is important is because, uh, number one, it would make sure the brother's name continued on, or this, the, the, the widow's husband's name would continue on. It would never cease. In Hebrew culture, if you wanted to do the worst thing you could to someone, you would blot their name out of the history. So that's why you see sometimes in Scripture, uh, things happen that are so bad, it says that, that their name was blotted out of history, out of the history books, uh, and this is the equivalent for them. They believed if you didn't have a son who could carry on your name, this was a curse of some sort. And so for them, it was a big deal that they needed someone to carry on their name. So that was the primary reason. The second thing was um, the Redeemer would buy back and protect property. So if, if, if the deceased brother had sold property, if the deceased brother had sold goods, uh, a house, whatever it might be, if he had sold it off, the Redeemer would come in and he would purchase it back ultimately for the inheritance for this person's children. 
So that was part of their obligation. The third thing was to buy back any living brother. So we've talked about slavery before, uh, but if, if I was in a lot of debt, thankfully they don't do this anymore for us, right? If you're in a lot of debt, you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off your debt. Some of you would be slaves, right, to MasterCard or Visa or American Express. Um, but, but that's not the case anymore, thank God. But what you would do is you would sell yourself into slavery. Sometimes you might even sell a child into slavery, and what the Redeemer would do would come in and purchase back any relatives who were sold into slavery to either pay off a debt or because of, um, because of provision for their family. He would buy back these people from slavery. And then the fourth thing, and this is going to do it for all the uh, like alpha male guys in the room, uh, the fourth thing was that the Redeemer was to be the avenger of blood. Wouldn't you love for that to be your comic book name? The avenger of blood. Now this is the thing. Um, let's say my brother was killed by another man in Jewish times. Um, what would happen is it wouldn't be like a, uh, you know, Liam Neeson movie where I go hunt him down. And, um, have you ever seen Taken before? This, this is not veering toward mothers. I'm sorry. But, um, in the movie Taken, like, you know, he's a special agent and he, Wife, I mean, his daughter gets kidnapped and he flies overseas. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out for a while, so I'm going to ruin it for you. And he hunts down the guys that have taken her captive and he kills them all. And it's like the, the man in me is like, yeah. And so me and my wife were watching that movie and I was like, baby, I would totally do that for you. And she was like, babe, you wouldn't get out of the airport. <laughs> That's true. I would not get out of the airport. Uh, <laughs> so this idea that the the brother, the redeemer would be the avenger of blood. What it means is if my brother were killed, I would have the responsibility of avenging his death. Now, this is what would happen. There was a provision in the law that if this person had killed my family member, they could go to a city of refuge. And at the city of refuge that they would go to, um, they would go to the priest, and the priest of that city would hear what had happened. And if they felt like they were guilty of capital murder, then that person would be turned over to me, and then I would be responsible for casting the first stone. So I wouldn't be responsible for murder or for killing them or executing them, but the, the town, usually elders, would be responsible for, for stoning this person to death. If the high priest found that it was involuntary manslaughter, it was an accidental murder, what would happen is that person would have to remain in the city of refuge until the priest died. And at that point, their debt was forgiven and they could go home. If they left the city of refuge before the priest died, then <laughs> I could go find them and take out the punishment on them. So this was a big deal. It wasn't just about, hey, I'm going to have some kids, and this is a little weird, and I guess we'll have a family. There was so much more to this. It literally was an obligation for the family member. And if the family member didn't fulfill their obligation, it was, it was, it was a blight on the family. It, it, was, it was beyond anything else that they could do because it was just expected that you would take care of your family. And so what we see here is Naomi is excited because she said, we thought we were hopeless, but there is one in which we have hope. He can redeem us. He can purchase us out of slavery. He can restore the name of your 
husband and my son. He can do what no one else can do. So there's reason to hope in this moment. Uh, There's reason to hope because he's already displayed that he's providing for her and protecting her, that his heart is for her. In verse 23, it says this, So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So when we look at this, we think that the chronological order is brief, that it's days, but what we see here is she shows up at the beginning of barley harvest, and the story carries on that she works till the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. So there's at least a month that goes by here, um, depending on the seasons, maybe a little longer. And so there's a relationship that's being built. There's character that's being displayed. Uh, Boaz is able to see her. She's able to see him work, and they understand who they are. But what we see here is... uh, in spite of Ruth and Naomi's desperation and their hopelessness, God shows up. In spite of what they feel, in spite of how hopeless their situation seems, God shows up. I'm thankful that there's been a few seasons of my life where God showed up unexpectedly in a way that I was not looking for him. He arrived on the scene. He arrived on the scene in the form of Boaz here. And they have reason to hope. See, they had a little bit of hope at the end of Ruth chapter 1. Maybe, maybe there's some hope. I mean, it's barley harvest, maybe. And we get to the end of Ruth chapter 2, and they go, oh, there's someone here who can do and fulfill the role of the Redeemer. So what they're saying is, God, we're seeing you work. We're seeing your hesed at work, but now we want you to, to do what you've done before. Do what you've done for others. Do do what you've done for us in the past. We just want you to display that again in our lives. For you, maybe you're here today and you're struggling. Maybe you don't have much hope. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship with a spouse or a child. Maybe you're struggling, like I talked about earlier, with that paying the bills. You're just feeling like the water is creeping over your head. You're just not going to make it. Maybe you're feeling pressure because of work, whatever it is. I'm telling you today, there's reason to be hopeful. (laughs) See, we don't have to jump through all the hoops that Ruth had to jump through with Boaz, as we'll see over the next couple weeks. God is here. And you might be thinking, I don't feel him. That's okay. He's here. And he is your redeemer. He's ready to meet you. He's ready to come alongside you. He's ready to display to you his goodness through provision and protection. So my question to you tonight is, do you need provision? Do you need protection? Because our Heavenly Father's here and he wants you to experience that. So why don't you pray with me tonight? Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are here. I pray for those that are here that are struggling, for those that are here, they feel overwhelmed. Those that are here, who feel like they are lacking, God, I pray today you would display your heart to us. Let us see how good you really are. Let us see in our lack that you can provide abundance. That God, when we feel the most vulnerable, you can protect us and shield us. That God, when we feel like we have nothing left, we have you. So God, let us see how crucial that is, how important that is, how how monumental that is. 
God, I pray for those here that are struggling tonight. I pray that you would just display your hesed, your, your covenant love and relationship to those that are here. Let them experience that. Let them sense that. God, I pray you provide exactly what we need, God. You, you see every heart. You see every situation. You know what it is better than I do. So God, I'm asking that you would just assure us today, individually, that you're going to take care of the needs if our hearts are submitted to you. God, help us to see that in our vulnerability, you will cover us and protect us. That God, you will provide what we need and protect us, but God, you're asking us to do the work that you're asking us to do. Just be faithful, just show up. So God, I'm asking tonight we would do that. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here and you say, Mel, you know what? I'm not really serving God. I'm not really in relationship with Jesus, but I know I need to be. I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you come forward. I'm just gonna pray with you right where you're at. So if that's you, would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up and say, pray for me, Mel, that's me. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you said, Mel, I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven, but the truth is I'm struggling with that provision and that protection thing that you were talking about. I feel like there's a lack in some areas and I need God to give me an abundance in, in something. Maybe it's provision for your life. Maybe it's protection. I don't know what it is, but you just say, I need God to move in those areas of my life. With nobody looking around, would you be bold enough to put your hand up or a high where I can pray with you? Yeah, yeah, quite a few of you. Yeah. God, I thank you that you are all we need. And I pray right now you just reveal that to us. Help us see how good you are. Lord, help us to experience abundant provision in our lives. God, I pray for the, the person that's here tonight who lacks peace. God, let them experience your peace that really does pass all understanding. God, I pray for the person here who feels absolutely hopeless tonight. God, let them find hope against all hope in this place, in you tonight. Not because their circumstances are changing, but because you are showing up. So God, let them experience that and see that. God, I pray for provision in people's health. Lord, I pray for people who are struggling financially, God, that you would show up in their life, you'd minister in them, and you'd give them what they need. They'd find fullness in you. God, have your way among us tonight. As you move, let us remember how you've moved in our lives before. God, as we are hoping, as we are believing, God, remind us of what you've done in the past so that, so that we can believe in a greater way for what you're gonna do in the future. So God, I pray for an abundance of hope and peace and joy and love in this place. Lord, I thank you that your word says, perfect love casts out, drives out all fear. So God, let your perfect love invade us tonight. Drive out fear, and I pray that you would guard us, protect us, shield us from everything this world would throw at us. So have your way among us tonight, God. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Guys, here's what's gonna happen now. The worship team's gonna lead us in one final song. As we're singing this final song together, our prayer team is gonna step forward to either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all tonight, no matter what it may be, as we begin to sing, step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members and let them agree with you in prayer. And then in just a few minutes, when we're done singing, Pastor Todd Stanley's gonna come and he's gonna close us out and dismiss us. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room and we're gonna worship together one more time before we go tonight. You guys are slow on the trigger there tonight.
Maybe you want to stay a little longer. That's okay. Uh, guys, I tell you often, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor, guys. I love you, and happy Mother's Day. God bless you guys.